Good evening. I'm Paul Drienzo with these headlines. President Joe Biden arrived in Lewiston Friday, visiting a city recovering after 18 people were killed in the deadliest mass shooting in Maine history. 13 people were wounded in the October 25th shootings. 18 precious souls stolen. 13 wounded. Children, grandchildren, spouses, siblings, parents, grandparents, bowling coaches, union workers, beloved members, advocates and friends of Lewis and deaf and hard of hearing community. The alleged gunman, Robert Card, was found dead of an apparent suicide after a manhunt and shelter in place ordered by officials. There isn't a motive, but family members had concerns for his deteriorating mental health. And in Gaza, an Israeli bomb struck a school used as a shelter, leaving blood-spattered walls and rubble. Earlier, Israel's military admitted striking an ambulance outside a crowded hospital. The charity Medical Aid for Palestine says 39 health care facilities and two hospitals have been struck by Israel's forces. Meanwhile, Hazan Nasrallah, the leader of the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah, denied it wants to a wider war with Israel. Nasrallah says his group is drawing Israel's attention away from Gaza to strengthen its ally, Hamas. The Hezbollah leader blamed the United States for the violence and reminded the U.S. of its losses in Lebanon in the 1980s. Those who defeated you in Lebanon at the early 80s are still alive, backed and supported by their children and grandchildren. On October 23, 1983, 241 U.S. military personnel and 220 Marines were killed by a suicide bomber in a barracks in Beirut. And Nasrallah left open the possibility of a wider conflict. All scenarios are open. All options are laid out. And we can adopt any at any point of time. And the United Nations Humanitarian Agency says it urgently needs $1.2 billion to fund relief efforts for 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza and 500,000 more in the West Bank. The UN spokesperson Liz Throssell says Israel is provoking violent settlers on the West Bank illegally occupying Palestinian land. Settler violence, which was already at record levels, has also escalated dramatically, averaging seven attacks a day. In more than a third of these attacks, firearms were used. We have documented that in many of these incidents, settlers were accompanied by members of the Israeli forces. Since October 7th, protests have rocked the West Bank. More than 256 Palestinians have been killed there, 11 in the last 24 hours. More than 2,000 Palestinians have been arrested. At a news conference in Israel, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke pointedly alone, without a representative for Israel at his side. President Biden has consistently stressed the need for Israel to operate according to international humanitarian law. I also emphasize that the protection of civilians must take place not just in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, where incitement and extremist violence against Palestinians must be stopped and perpetrators held accountable. More than 9,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. Almost 4,000 are children. WBAI spoke with Palestinian peace activist Mazin Kumseya at his home in Bethlehem on Friday. He says the United States and its allies are supporting genocide. This is the first time in history where we have supposed international law. It is being ignored and war crimes and crimes against humanity are supported and even funded and weaponized by uh, the U.S. and its allies like uh, Germany and France. In Washington, President Biden says he'll veto a $14.5 billion supplemental arms package for Israel because he opposed the GOP approach. Newly minted Speaker Mike Johnson wants to hook the funding to budget cuts. And President Biden has said his call for $100 billion in weapons to Israel and Ukraine is good for the economy because it creates jobs. But Air Force veteran Christian Sorensen, senior editor at the Eisenhower Network, says that's not true. There are many other industries that the U.S. government could invest in, such as healthcare and sustainable energy and education, which produce far more jobs per dollar than comparable investment in military industry. 
And in local news, yesterday, the FBI raided the home of Mayor Eric Adams' chief fundraiser, Brianna Shugs, investigating if money from Turkey was being funneled into his campaign. The mayor abruptly canceled a trip to Washington to discuss the migrant crisis and hasn't answered reporters' questions since. He's not been mentioned in the investigation. And we'll hear more from our guests later in the newscast. Religious-based hatred is on the rise in the United States. The Anti-Defamation League says there's been a nearly 400% increase in incidents of harassment, vandalism, and assault against Jewish people since the war began, while the Council on American-Islamic Relations says it's received 774 complaints, a tenfold increase, but probably only a fraction of actual cases. Vice President Kamala Harris announced a White House initiative to combat Islamophobia. The Biden-Harris administration will develop our nation's first national strategy to counter Islamophobia. This strategy will be a comprehensive and detailed plan to protect Muslims and those perceived to be Muslim from hate, bigotry, and violence, and to address the concern that some government policies may discriminate against Muslims. For example, the so-called Muslim ban, which President Biden revoked on our first day in office. In New York City, with 1.6 million Jewish adherents and 800,000 Muslims, including 30,000 Palestinians, the city is scrambling to head off conflict. City Council Speaker Adrienne Adams spoke today. As Americans, we always protect and encourage freedom of speech, and our differences make us stronger. We must remain committed to preserving these principles and at the same time be vigilant in preventing our differences from being exploited. In more news, Mazen Kumseya is a peace activist based in Bethlehem on the West Bank. He welcomes an outpouring of support from progressive activists around the globe. He says the United States should stop funding Israel's war machine. It's actually very critical to avoid anti-Semitic movements to capitalize on this. People need to be aware of what's going on. The reason I think this is so critical is not just because I'm Palestinian or Palestinians will lose or might lose. There are many other suffering. The Congo with the genocide in Congo or in Armenia. There are many holocausts and genocides in the world. But this is the first time in history where we have supposed international law and it is being ignored and war crimes and crimes against humanity are supported and even funded and weaponized by the U.S. and its allies like Germany and France. This could start a regional war and a global war because I am sure neither China or Russia or Iran or Brazil or India, for that matter, are going to let a world happen in which might makes right, in which a U.S. just decides because they have the bigger guns that they can dictate what happens around the world, including sacrificing. Okay, Palestinians will be a sacrificial lamb. The next will not be just Palestinians, it will be the rest of the Arab world, the rest of the Muslim world. And then Iran and China and others. China is already there talking about Taiwan. And Taiwanese could be a sacrificial lamp in our, just like, you know, Ukraine. People are not important in this uh, geopolitical power structure. But over a year and a half in Ukraine, less civilians were killed than in this war in three weeks. That's people should reflect on this, you know, all the billions they submitted to Ukraine. There was less killing of civilians in Ukraine than, than in three weeks in Gaza. Kumsia adds Gaza has become synonymous with another massacre nearly 80 years ago when Jews in the ghetto of the Polish capital of Warsaw rose up against the German army. The Warsaw ghetto uprising was similar in the sense that the fighters knew that uh, eventually they will be conquered and it will get even worse for them. But they had very little to lose. And, uh, you know, people in Gaza had very little to lose. Poverty rates in the past 17 years has gone up from about 25% to 55% in Gaza. Gaza was besieged, blockaded, attacked every two or three years 
to test Israeli weapons. So when you put people in a concentration camp, you don't expect like one Israeli general once said in the 1950s, once we have settled the land, all the Palestinians will be able to do is run around like drugged cockroaches in a bottle. This is his description. Drugged cockroaches in a bottle is an interesting metaphor, but sometimes these roaches, as happened October 7th, they were able to break out of the bottle. When I ask Israelis, strangely, you know, I ask them, look, from 1948, you've committed hundreds of massacres, you've killed so many Palestinians, the crescendo of killing keeps increasing. Did you see the crescendo of resistance decreasing? Did you pacify them by killing more of them? This war could go genocide, as you call it, but there is there is fighting back. So I grew up in the Vietnam War in the United States. The United States went into Vietnam massively more powerful and could not win a victory after 10 years of combat. Are we looking towards this kind of situation, which, you know, fighting from the rubble for years to come? You can look at the psychology of the Vietnamese. It seems hopeless that they're fighting great power. They continued to fight, and even the U.S. resorted to using napalm and and, uh, Agent Orange to denude all their plants, all their trees, Real genocide was committed in Vietnam, and the Vietnamese kept fighting back. So the psychology of fighting back is not about balance of power, so to speak. It's about what options do they have. And I find in the Western colonial mentality, they can never really understand those that they oppress and their psychology. Their psychology is psychology of people here. Mm-hmm. Is that, okay, they can kill us, they can destroy us, but even if there's one child left, that child will grow up to resist because it's our country and we don't have any other country and what are we going to do? We must resist to remain on our land, as hopeless as it may be. What about uh, this two-state solution idea? Yes, it is a public relations propaganda bullshit, if I may use that terminology. The U.S. has taken Israel's side all along. Meanwhile, aid workers have been taking heavy casualties since Israel's invasion of Gaza began, and nearly 10,000 civilians have been killed. More than 4,000 children have died. Zayad Abbas Shamruch is with Mecha, the Middle East Children's Alliance. He says the Israeli military's claim Hamas is using civilians as a shield is an excuse. Actually, you called while I am talking with my colleagues and uh, our partners on the ground in Gaza. Yeah, in Gaza right now, it's under all Gaza Strip under a huge attack in this moment. And anyone watching the Al Jazeera TV, they can see it live. And all the services, it's out. No services in Gaza because Israel from the first day, from October 7th, they cut the electricity, no power, they cut the water, they refused to allow the fuel to get entered to Gaza or the food and medical supplies. It's uh, the, many uh, the human rights organizations, including the international medical teams, including United Nations, Gaza is in a disaster right now. You have over 5,000 people already killed in Gaza. 15,000 people injured, and you have over 2,000 children. They are already killed, 11 women among them. So most of the people, they are already killed. They are civilians. So it's a, the, uh, it's a huge attack. And when it comes to the water issue, water is another huge uh, 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 catastrophic situation because you have 1.4 million people already left their homes. They are already moved toward the south area and uh, uh, Khan Yunus and Rafah and middle area, actually. And these people, they can't access the clean water. Many people, they are already drinking the contaminated water, which it will impact them and more disease. People, they are not able to shower. <laughs> 
or children, they are not able to shower. And this is, will be the reason where different kinds of disease will spread among them. In addition to that, there are like close to 400,000 people that are living in United Nations schools. And you have like over 10,000 people living in each school. And these schools, like one case, it will spread any kind of disease among the people. This is another disaster. Hospitals, they are not able. They don't have the medical supplies. They don't have the power. And they don't have the capacity uh, to treat the people. When you have 15,000 people injured, Gaza hospitals is not prepared to receive this kind of number. So they expand the hospitals and the parking lots uh, out around the, the hospitals to try to treat these people. It's a catastrophic situation. And Israel, even, they continue bombing. And we saw how they bombed the hospital. And 471 people, they were killed uh, uh, in Al-Ahli Hospital. And other Al-Quds Hospital near the hospital where they bombed. We saw how they bombed mosques, churches. They were bombed in, in Gaza. And this is it's a catastrophic. Day by day, hour by hour, the mm -hmm. number of the casualties, it's increasing in Gaza Strip. And... Even even if the war stopped today, different kinds of disease will be spread in Gaza. And just I want to remind the listeners that you have over, according to the statistics, over 1,500 people already reported disappeared. And these people could be, they are killed and under the rebels of houses, they were destroyed. Mm -hmm. It was destroyed during the attacks. What do you say to the Israeli point of view that uh, Hamas is hiding behind civilians and that's why this is happening and therefore Hamas is to blame? Israel, they are very, in each war, and this is like the excuses where to kill children, over 2,000 children. It doesn't mean they want to bomb Gaza. It doesn't mean that uh, they need to bomb hospitals or bomb mosques or churches. These kind of excuses just using for the international media, especially the media, they want to take it as an excuse to support Israel. In fact, the people in Gaza and the world, they know Israel is lashing everywhere. They are bombing. And by the way, 2.3 million people in Gaza living on 139 square miles. Anywhere the bomb, it will reach to civilians. And this is the, the reason. And you have almost, almost over 500 families erased totally because they are bombing houses while the people inside their houses. Even they asked the people from North Gaza to, to leave, to evacuate. So many people, they left already to the, to the south and they are still continue bombing the south area where they flee and they try to take a, a place secure. No place secure. And, uh, and Gaza. And many reports, I asked the people in the ground, what's going on? They said, the people in Gaza, this is there, what they say. Israel just targeting every Palestinian, every part of Gaza Strip, just because it's Palestinian, nothing to deal with the uh, Hamas or the Palestinian, they are the target. Everything Palestinian, not just the human being, the building, the hospitals, the mosques, the churches, the universities, the clinics. And while I'm speaking with you, now they are writing, a doctor, he is killed while he was in the pharmacy. They bought the pharmacy. They targeted bakery where they make bread. And now there is a shortage in everything mm. in Gaza Strip. But Israel targeting civilians. And this is the way how they do it. Now what they say to the media, this is what the people in Gaza, they say. Whatever they say in the media all the time, they try to find excuses for this genocidal attack. People in Gaza, they call it genocidal attack because it's killing everyone. And they are using Gaza now as a new lab for uh, a new kind of weapons that the doctors, they reported from different hospitals, the injured people or killed. It seems it's not the same uh, bombs they were using in previous wars against Gaza. So it's this is how it is the situation right now. And I'm trying to bring the voices of the people in Gaza where they speak with us almost every day if they are lucky to have internet. And this is how they see the things that they are targeted. And people in Gaza surviving now, who survived? Surviving on luck and collective spirits.
we will support each other. They try to take care of each other and they try to survive. And this is how it is. All right, I'm going to leave it at that. Thanks a lot. In Washington, the Senate Appropriations Committee was discussing a bill to provide more weapons to Israel and Ukraine. Chair Patty Murray says the Biden administration is showing the way. That means a package that provides support to the Ukrainians who are at, are at a crucial point in their fight to protect their sovereignty and the end of the butchery of Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion. Meeting this moment also means a package that ensures we stand with Israel as it works to protect its people in the wake of the horrific Hamas attack. But it wasn't long at the testimony by Secretary of State Antony Blinken when protesters interrupted. Thank you. And before I turn back over to you, Secretary Blinken, I just really want to thank the Capitol Police for their very calm and professional manner. We all appreciate it. Secretary Blinken, can you please continue? Thank you. So to continue, uh, since Russia launches... With hands painted blood red, 12 were arrested. Code Pink activist Medea Benjamin says it's time for a ceasefire. We were there because it's a rare occasion to be able to directly confront both the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense at a time when we feel this tremendous disconnect between what our government is doing and what is not only the right thing, but what the American people want, which is a ceasefire. So we thought it was very important to get out there and to interrupt them at this hearing and say not only to the representatives of the White House, but also to the Senate itself, shame on you. Not one of you senators has called for a ceasefire. You're allowing, enabling, giving the green light to Israel for this massacre that's resulting in the death of one child every 10 minutes, and it must stop. All these allegations of anti-Semitism, yet I saw people wearing T-shirts that advertised the fact they were Jewish and from Jewish Voices for Peace. So uh, your response to these constant refrain that you hear over and over again that this is anti-Semitic? Well, certainly this is being used as a cover-up for the atrocities to say that those of us, including myself, who is Jewish, uh, who criticize what Israel is doing are anti-Semitic or, or self-hating Jews. Um, the, the truth is the contrary of that. Uh, we understand how horrific this is, not only for the people of Palestine, but for the future of Israel. I would hate to be a, a traveling on an Israeli passport these days. Uh, I think there is tremendous animosity in the world right now towards Israel, not because people are Jewish, but because of the apartheid regime and the massacre they are carrying out in Gaza and uh, the decades and decades of occupation uh, that people in other countries of the world tend to know more about than people here in the United States. Last thing, the red hands. I saw folks had their palms, their hands painted red. We wanted it to be clear that this government has blood on its hands that the Senate has blood on its hands. And really, we want to say that the American people, we have blood on our hands if we continue to allow our government to send billions of dollars to Israel to buy more bombs to kill more civilians. Great. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. As reported earlier in the newscast, in Washington, President Biden says he'll veto a $14.5 billion supplemental arms package for Israel because he opposed the GOP's approach. Newly minted Speaker Mike Johnson wants to hook the funding to budget cuts. Here's my extended interview with Air Force veteran Christian Sorensen, senior editor at the Eisenhower Network, who says the arms industry is fleecing America and driving its wars. The U.S. ruling class dominates the world. It sends the, it deploys the poor and the working class who comprise the U.S. armed forces around the world in order to bully other countries, in order to protect resource extraction, mostly from the global south into the hands of western-based multinational corporations, and because the business of war is incredibly profitable to the U.S. ruling class. And so that's the overall strategy. Now, whether people resist or people don't resist, that's up to those people. The business of war is incredibly tied into 
U.S. support for apartheid Israel and its ongoing campaign of ethnic cleansing since 1948 of what remains of Palestinian land. Mm -hmm. It has been going good. It's been just going downhill. Does that actually matter in the planners' minds, or is it just entirely about selling weapons? And is that what you're saying? Is it that cynical? Well, that's actually that's a great point. If you look at the widely publicized drawdown of U.S. troops in Afghanistan, that should have, by most logic, corresponded with a reduction in the U.S. military and intelligence budgets. But the actual opposite happened. The U.S. ruling class withdrew sizable forces from the occupation of Afghanistan only to increase the militarization of Eastern Europe and the militarization of the Pacific, which had been going on nonstop since pretty much uh, November of 2011 during the Obama administration, when the Obama administration announced the military-industrial complex's pivot to Asia. There is always going to be a conflict because the U.S. government, on behalf of big business, is always the number one aggressor. At what point did the United States, the American people, say, we're being grifted here? Well, that's the thing. The American public is getting wise, is getting wise to the racket that is nonstop war, which is one of the main reasons why the U.S. government is now cracking down on information sharing across alternative media and across social media. The U.S. government has long been a strong proponent of domestic censorship, particularly on the issue of Palestine. And we see a concerted effort to cooperate with Silicon Valley and even infiltrate Silicon Valley, according to some excellent reporting over at The Intercept and other independent media, in order to crack down on free expression and sharing of information that contradicts the official narrative coming out of the Pentagon and the State Department on matters of war and peace. Is there a problem in the U.S. military? Can you speak to that at all, of uh, infiltration by uh, QAnon-type people? Well, I would step back and point to a broader problem that what you're talking about is directly related to. I would say that the U.S. working class and the poor that comprise the ranks of the U.S. armed forces and large swaths of U.S. intelligence have been propagandized since pretty much the National Security Act of 1947 into believing many of the lies of the U.S. ruling class, primarily that the U.S. ruling class is benevolent, is altruistic, and deploys the troops around the world for good reasons like spreading democracy and protecting freedom and stuff like that. There is a history of sort of distorting the mind of the American public. And so the American public is also conditioned at the same time to hate the other on the receiving end, whether it is the person Far East descent, because we are now in an elective Cold War against China, or we saw primarily in the last 22 years of the forever wars across the greater Middle East, the demonization of Arab people and the concordant rise in hate crimes domestically against Arab people. So I would point to a broader problem, that is to say, the U.S. poor and working class are the recipients of a large propaganda campaign to hate foreigners and hate other people. And that cannot be separated from a poisoned mind like those in QAnon. Good evening. An earthquake kills thousands in Afghanistan. Israel's air force bombs densely populated neighborhoods in Gaza. An invasion is certain, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. launches an independent bid for the presidency. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news. In northwestern Afghanistan, a massive earthquake has killed more than 2,400 people. It was the deadliest tremor in years. Whole villages were leveled to rubble in the mountainous region, 20 miles from the city of Herat. The healthcare system in the landlocked country has been severely cut in a country emerging from decades of war and foreign occupation. The Taliban government is almost totally reliant on outside medical assistance, with the United States withholding billions in aid since the chaotic withdrawal of U.S. troops last August. In New York, hundreds protested in Times Square and around the globe on Sunday in support of the Palestinian attack launched from Gaza that took Israel by surprise, killing and injuring thousands. Palestine. 
Supporters of the Jewish state also rallied, but the Palestinian supporters were the more diverse, including many Jewish New Yorkers. The attack, organized by Hamas, came Friday and caught the Israeli military by surprise. An Israeli counter-protester, Jonathan, acknowledged the much-vaunted Israeli intelligence service failed. The Israeli government, when the war is over, needs to do a serious accounting. But right now, I think everyone needs to be focused on uniting and fighting the Palestinians. To what end? I mean, how far should they go? Whatever it takes to keep Israelis and Jews and people who are on the side of freedom safe. Thousands of Palestinians swarmed the fence separating the enclave, where two million Palestinians live, mostly descendants of refugees from Israel's founding in 1948. Videos on social media showed fighters as they paraglide into Israel. Others show captured Israeli bulldozers smashing down the barrier. Disturbing videos showed Israeli men, women, and children being taken prisoner. And as Israeli warplanes struck back, lighting the sky with bombs, bodies were pulled from the rubble. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu predicted a long and bloody war as Israel battles to expel fighters who have captured several Israeli villages surrounding Gaza. A Palestinian protester in New York, Sawad, says Palestinians want peace too, but they're fed up with Israel's brutal treatment. Nobody wants bloodshed, but what can we do? The Israelis every day, every week, they kill five Palestinians. They put their houses down. They call them terrorists. Thousands of youngs in the prisons. Mr. Binding, go back to the history. Meanwhile, the United States is moving an aircraft carrier group close to Israel. The United States has doubled down its support of its closest ally in the region. Reportedly, at least nine Americans have died in Israel since the fighting began. Retired General Barry McCaffrey says intervention in support of Hamas by Israel's neighbors would lead to war. I would just suggest to you our support of Israel will be absolute. And if we see Syrian military intervention, active Iranian intervention, uh, we'll go to war. But writer Miko Peled, who was born in Jerusalem, says the world is ignoring the plight of Palestinians in Gaza and Palestinian rage is the result. It's an ongoing horror show. Israelis are having parties on the other side of the fence as people are dying of thirst and lack of medical care and being bombed. Israelis are having a party or a music festival on the other side of the fence. I mean, that's the reality. People were killed, aren't you? Don't we feel yeah. sorry for those folks? Well, we feel sorry for anybody who's died. Everybody has a mother and a father, so of course we, you know, it's a sad story. But you create a reality like this, and it's to be expected. Mike Pellet is author of an article on the Mondo Weiss website titled The October Failures. In his extended remarks, Pellet says the Israeli army and intelligence services have always been overestimated. Their failure in predicting and countering the Hamas attack was itself predictable. Israeli, the Israeli brutality is something that Palestinians have been used to for you know, 75 years, more than 75 years. And so Palestinians uh, have to live with the brutality whether they fight back or not. I mean, most of the time, Palestinians face Israeli brutality for just speaking out, not for, not for you know, standing up and fighting. But uh, so that's 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 part of that's part of the you know that's that's the, that's the day in the life of a Palestinian is a life of putting up with Israeli brutality. Uh, but from time to time they stand up, and and the sad thing is that the world instead of instead of supporting them, supporting the Palestinians who have you know really put together a, a, you know a, tactically at least a brilliant attack. Um, everybody sides with the oppressor. They're siding with Israel. They're supporting Israel, which has been, you know, designated and, and accused directly by Amnesty International of committing the crime of apartheid. Mm-hmm. So there's something clearly, clearly uh, wrong uh, in this picture. It seems like an older, conservative, all-white, doesn't seem like it's mo- in the modern world. I mean, they're not recognizing changes that are happening in our world. No, and and look at who's supporting Israel. Some of the worst, uh, you know, fascist and neo-Nazi regime, uh, the, 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 um, leaders in Europe are supporting Israel. Uh, here in America, you know, all politicians support Israel. They've got this blind, uh, you know, this blind policy that you have to support Israel. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the the call for justice, the call for freedom, the call for apartheid is one that is that unifies people. I mean, I walked yesterday. I was walking around the street. I'm in Washington D.C. Uh, wearing a Palestine T-shirt, and um, people of all backgrounds came up to me and said, "Wow, that's great! You know, we support Palestine. It's so good to see somebody wearing the T-shirt. You know, wearing a, a free Palestine T-shirt." 
So of course mm-hmm. it's much more diverse, but the problem is that uh, that uh, you know the the power is in the hands of the people who oppose change, who oppose justice, the power people who support sending weapons to to regimes like the Israeli regime. That's that's precisely the problem, and Palestinians know this. Palestinians are aware of this. Um, but from time to time, I think expecting them to rise and, and, and fight like they did is, is um, I mean, it's, it's, it's to be expected. It's so frightening, though. I mean, Israel has got, I mean, they sent an aircraft carrier to the United States. I mean, it's yeah. like sending an aircraft carrier to take down people who are armed with rifles. Imagine if France had sent an aircraft carrier to the colonies when the U.S. was having its revolution to side with the British. Yeah. If Americans had a clear understanding, they would demand that the Sixth Fleet or carrier would be sent to, to help people in Gaza and to support the people in Gaza in their struggle and to support the people in Gaza in their, you know, even on a humanitarian basis, not even on a military basis. Now they're sending an aircraft carrier to support this, the brutality and the, 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 the bloodletting that Israel has been doing to Palestinians. The Americans should rise and, and demand that they, the, the carrier be turned around. I mean, this is unbelievable. This is, this is incredible. What is the possibility of this expanding into a much bigger conflict? I doubt it. And if they were going, to, if the Hezbollah was going to participate, they already would have. I mean, it's clearly, in my opinion, not going to turn into an all-out war, regional war. What one would have hoped, though, that the powers around Israel would rally around the Palestinians and support the Palestinians, the countries, at least the countries who neighbor Palestine and who have a connection to Palestine, the Arab countries, the Muslim countries would rally around and impose severe sanctions against the state of Israel and cut all diplomatic ties with the state of Israel and treat it as it should be, as an apartheid state. And sadly, that does not seem to be the case, although I have to say the, the Saudi foreign minister announced that all talks of normalization are off the table right now, which is, of course, in my opinion, a very good thing. Mm-hmm. But I would have hoped that there would be a much stronger rallying around the Palestinian cause at this point when they're standing up and they need support than they're, than what we're seeing. Where is this going to head? I mean, it looks like a terrible you know, invasion, street fighting from the rubble. Yeah. Not quite Stalingrad, well, they don't, you know, but something akin to no, a street, <laughs> street warfare yeah. out of the rubble. Well, right now, Israel is in, intent on, on revenge, and so they're exacting a, a horrible you know, punishment on, on innocent civilians in Gaza. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's going to end with negotiations. And then the question is, will the Palestinians be able to exact uh, at least the serious political gains? Because, you know, the test, the test of, a, of a military operation is what, what you gain politically, really. It's not enough to have a brilliant you know, battle, you need to be able to, to get political gain from it. And the hope is, my hope at least, is that when the negotiations do begin, the Palestinians will be able to leverage their uh, military gains and turn them into political gains and big political gains. They've already talked about the desire to, the demand to release the political prisoners, Palestinian prisoners. And now they've got a lot of Israeli um, prisoners. They have even said they even have a general among the prisoners, and they've got some leverage there. But I would hope that they would demand a lot more, that they would demand freedom, that they would demand an end of the siege of Gaza, at least. But one thing is sure, they're going to end up in negotiations, because these things always do. What will happen beyond that, of course, is, is the big question. The Netanyahu government, could this be a death knell for them? Nothing whatsoever. They're talking about a unity government. So the thing is, you know, people always compare what happened now, October 7th to 50 years ago, 1973, the October War. One thing that's very different is that in those days, Israelis had a political choice. And so there were elections after that. They got rid of the Golda Meir government and they elected a, the opposition. That political reality no longer exists because Netanyahu, being the brilliant politician that he is, I and mean, he's a terrible statesman, but he's a brilliant politician, knows how to stay in power. So now, not only is there not an opposition, not only is there nobody saying he's got to go because of this massive failure, but the opposition is on their knees begging to be let in to the cabinet and create, they want a seat at the table, which everybody thinks is a great idea, but of course, democratically, it's a terrible idea. Why would they want to be part of this? But Israeli politics is all about who gets to sit in what chair, and it's always a game of musical chairs. Even if Israelis chose to vote for somebody else, it's somebody who was in that seat three weeks ago or six months ago. So Netanyahu is very safe. He's the only one who knows how to play this game, and he always wins. I don't see any danger for him. And, of course, he came out 
well, all these announcements of the next war and all that kind of stuff and punishing Gaza, which Israelis love. So I don't think there's any risk of him or any chance of him going away anytime soon. Innocent people who had nothing to do with this, in a way, suffering. Yeah, and they're going to be suffering a lot more. There's no question. At the end of the day, Palestinians are always the ones who are, who are victims, regardless of what takes place. Miko Pellet is author of an article available at MondoWeiss.net titled The October Failures. And in national news, in Philadelphia, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced to cheering supporters he's quitting the Democratic Party to free himself from what he calls control by corporate bosses to run as an independent for President of the United States. But to do that, I must first declare my own independence. Independence from the Democratic Party. from all other political parties. I, I haven't made this decision lightly. It's very painful for me to let go of the party of my uncles, my father, my, my grandfather, and both of my great-grandfathers, Honey Fitz, Fitzgerald, and Patrick, who was the first Irish Catholic ghetto mayor of Boston, and Patrick Kennedy, who was a ward boss in Boston, both of them launched our political dynasty over a hundred years ago. But my sacrifice is nothing compared to the risk our founding fathers took when they signed the Declaration of Independence 247 years ago. They knew that if their revolution failed, every last one of them would be hanged. They chose to place everything on the line. When John Adams put his pen down, after adding his signature to the declaration, he turned to those present and he said to them, sink or swim, live or die, survive or perish, from this day on, I am with my country. I'm gonna make... I'm gonna make that same pledge to you today so that I can stand before you as every leader should, should stand before you, free of partisan allegiance, free from, the, free from the backroom deals, servant only to my conscience, to my creator, and to you. Today, today we turn a new page in American politics. There have been independent candidates in this country before, but this time it's going to be different. Because, because this time, the independent is going to win. Three quarters of Americans believe that President Biden is too old to govern effectively. President Trump faces multiple civil and criminal trials. Both of them have favorability ratings that are deep in negative territory. That's what two-party politics has given us. And that's why we need to pry loose from the hammerlock of the corrupt powers in Washington, D.C. and make this nation ours again. But there's a sacrifice that everyone, including myself, have to make if we're going to reunite America. We're going to have to surrender the kind of political addiction that is ultimately at the root of all of these divisions. And that's the addiction to taking sides. Our nation's renewal is going to begin when we start to treat each other with respect. Only then will we be able to step outside our tired, stuck debates. We can ask the questions then that nobody thought to ask. We can discover solutions that were right in front of our face. We will listen not just to the other side, but to those who are apart from any side. In a two-sided conflict, both parties have a kind of mutual dependency. 
each side depends on the other to define themselves as good guys in contrast to the other side, who, of course, are the bad guys. Well, if you're a team good, then you'll do anything, no matter how unscrupulous, to defeat team evil. And that's why we've seen both parties sacrificing their core values and the, and the foundational canons of democracy in an all-out power for power for in an all-out struggle for power. In a war against evil, any means justifies the end. The result is that we ourselves become evil if we participate in that battle. The child who is obsessed with hating a parent becomes that parent. As I've surrendered my attachment to taking sides over the past six months, I've been able to listen with new ears to people with whom I disagree and to see solutions that would otherwise have been invisible. I'll give you an example. Six months ago, I thought that an open border was a humanitarian policy and that sealing, if you were for sealing the border, it meant that you were probably a xenophobe and maybe a racist. I was wrong. How did I learn I was wrong? It wasn't just that I listened. It, it wasn't just that I listened to the other side. It was when I actually visited the border and listened to people who weren't on either side. My views changed as I spoke to Border Patrol officers, to local officials, to local sheriffs, to aid workers, and to the migrants themselves. I saw that no one party has a monopoly on wisdom, and none of the simplistic narratives actually contain the whole truth. My promise to you as president is that I'm going to do this on every issue. I'm going to listen to the stakeholders. I'm going to listen to the stakeholders from every side and beyond any side. I'm going to uphold my moral convictions, of course, absolutely. But I'll hold my own opinions lightly. I'll look at the evidence and the arguments, and I'll choose not the easy path, not the established path, but the right path. In making an independent run for president, I take inspiration from the one other president who, who did not have a political party, and that president was George Washington. And his, In his farewell address, Washington issued a prescient warning about the disastrous potential of party politics. Inevitably, he said, political parties will be taken over by a cunning, ambitious, unprincipled minority who will serve the interests of the party rather than the interests of the nation and usurp for themselves the reins of government. Washington's dire prediction has certainly come true. I intend to wrest the reins of both parties and return power to the American people. Now, now let me tell you what an independent presidency will look like. Because I'm independent of the military contractors, I'll be able to pursue a foreign policy that puts peace and diplomacy first. And because I'm independent of wealthy donors, I'll be able to close the loopholes and giveaways that bloat our budget. And because I'm independent of Wall Street, I'll be able to rescue debtors instead of the banks during the next, uh, during the next financial crisis. And because I'm independent of big polluters, I'll be able to clean up our soil, our water, our air, and protect our Purple Mountains majesty. And because I'm independent of corporations, I'll be able to unravel the corporate capture of our regulatory agencies.
time, because I'm independent of both political parties, I'll be able to enact bold policies that are outside of the partisan conversation. Let me be clear, though. Being independent of the two political parties is not, does, not mean, does not mean making them my enemy. Dogmatic opposition is just as much a form of dependency as dogmatic loyalty. As president, I'm going to work with officials from both parties who want to join me in serving our nation rather than exploiting and searching for partisan political advantage. That's what a new Democrat, a new Declaration of Independence sounds like. Remember this moment. We have a year and one month until the election. Let's go take back our country. An environmental lawyer best known as the son of Senator Robert F. Kennedy, also a candidate for president who was assassinated in Los Angeles the night he won that state's Democratic presidential primary in 1968. Kennedy Jr. is also known for his iconoclastic views opposing the use of vaccines. The administration of President Joe Biden said Thursday it will continue building the wall between Mexico and the United States because of record migrant crossings. The barrier was made famous by former President Donald Trump with his signature slogan, Build the Wall. In 2021, Biden pledged no new taxpayer money would go for the wall. Speaking to reporters today, Biden says he can't stop money for the wall already approved by Trump. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. Trump used the occasion to claim victory and demand an apology from the president. Few places are more impacted by the surge of migrants seeking asylum in the United States than New York City. Mayor Eric Adams, who is about to embark on a trip to Latin America, says more than 120,000 asylum seekers have come to the city since last year, with a projected cost to taxpayers of $12 billion. The city has moved to suspend the right to shelter, a 1981 consent agreement requiring the city to provide temporary housing for unhoused people, the only city in the country with that requirement. The mayor criticized the Biden asylum policy in an interview on Wednesday. The president has done a great job. We've stood side by side around crime. We stood side by side around environmental issues. But on this issues, I believe the White House is wrong. The executive director of the Coalition for the Homeless is David Giffen. He tells WBAI the mayor's proposal would undo 80 years of progress on behalf of the poor and unhoused in New York. It is the responsibility of the government to care for the needy. This is the birthplace of progressivism. The fact that the mayor and the governor now are turning their back on the long ideals of New York City, on the humanity and compassionate and practical approaches that have allowed us to thrive as a city for the last hundred years is a betrayal of everything that's made the city great. Giffen adds if Mayor Adams gets his way, the streets of New York would soon look like San Francisco and Los Angeles, where tent cities have sprouted on sidewalks throughout their downtowns. And as the civil and criminal cases against former President Donald Trump have progressed, his violent rhetoric and false claims the 2020 election was stolen have been agitating his supporters and instigating threats against his real and imagined opponents. More recently, Trump has taken to making direct threats himself. He suggested former Joint Chiefs Chair General Mark Milley be executed for phone calls he made in the course of his work with his Chinese counterpart. Speaking on 60 Minutes, Milley said he could take care of himself. The former Commander-in-Chief seems to be calling for your execution. Are you worried about your safety? I've got adequate safety precautions. I, I wish those comments had not been made, but they were, and we'll take appropriate measures to ensure my safety and the safety of my family. Last month, Trump's friend and occasional lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, lost a defamation suit brought by two Georgia election workers. The former New York City mayor had accused of stuffing ballots. Giuliani has to pay $132,000 in sanctions. I'm Paul Durianzo in New York. Thanks for listening.